Oso, and welcome to the third episode of the Menominee Food Sovereignty Podcast. My name is Jess, and I'm an AmeriCorps member at the College of Menominee Nation in Kashina, Wisconsin. In this podcast, I interview people who are doing the essential work of restoring food sovereignty to the Menominee Nation. Food sovereignty is the right of people to have access to fresh, healthy, culturally appropriate foods, and to have a say in how their food is produced and where it comes from. But as you'll hear throughout this podcast, everyone's definition is a little different. The Menominee people have lived in what is now known as Wisconsin for thousands of years, and they trace their origin to the mouth of the Menominee River, which now forms most of the border between Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. The Menominee Nation had food sovereignty before colonization, and now the community is envisioning what it will look like in the future. I hope that these interviews will inform and inspire you. Today I'll be interviewing Jennifer Gothier, who works for the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension. Back before the pandemic, Jen and I used to have our offices next to each other at the College of Menominee Nation. We only got to work together in person for about a month, and I wish it had been longer because Jen is such a lovely person with so much knowledge about Menominee culture and so much passion for serving her community. On that note, I'll let her introduce herself. My name is Jennifer K. Gothier, and uh, I'm an enrolled Menominee. I work with the Division of Extension located uh, within the community. I'm thankful to have an office right there at the College of Menominee Nation. It's a really good hub for doing uh, outreach and education. Background-wise, uh, trying to think, uh, not always really great about talking about myself, um, but I didn't actually uh, grow up on the reservation. My dad joined the Air Force when he was 18 years old, so um, had the the fortune and, and privilege of kind of um, moving around the country a little bit when I was younger. Uh, when I was about I think it was like 15 or 16. I actually stayed with my mom's parents, uh, my grandparents on that side of the family and graduated from high school here at Menominee Indian High School. Uh, Went away to college and came back and really blessed and fortunate to have been able to work for the tribe. I worked there for about, I wanna say almost 15 years um, in a lot of different roles. Had some really great mentors. There were like a a lot of really uh, strong women that I worked with that, um, were examples for me and um, examples of leadership and just just how to be a good, kind person when you're at work. I'm really thankful for that. Working for the tribe, I um, listened a lot, learned a lot, was able to travel. Same thing with an extension, uh, listen, learn from others, um, had the opportunity to travel. And, uh, and all of those experiences just met so many really great people that inspired me and I think helped me uh, with where I'm at today. So um, everything I do, I think about my family and those experiences and work and all of those experiences. And yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my background. When I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grow up. And here I am now, and I, I still don't really know what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, and I'm learning to be okay with that, that um, just kind of letting the experiences guide me. And um, I'm just real thankful and fortunate to have a, a good team that I work with and work friends that I, I think, you know, I would even call them. They're my family too. So that's my story in a nutshell. (laughs) So you mentioned traveling a lot as a kid and traveling for your job as well. When I started here, I remember you had just been to New Zealand. Do you feel like traveling is an important part of who you are? Yeah, definitely an important part of of who I am. So um, 
you know, just the, the opportunity to, to learn from others, um, have different experiences, hear different languages, try different foods. I feel like it's helped me be more open and more understanding. And it's also reinforced a lot too. So I think one of the, the cool things about Indigenous peoples is there's there's some common threads that were woven together. So when I was in uh, New Zealand, I heard a lot of stories that were similar to some of the stories that I had heard, or even like cultural arts. There's some of the things that are not exactly the same, but they're they're similar, and um, it's just really eye opening and kind of a wow experience when you have those have those moments. So, can you talk a little bit about projects that you're working on now? Sure. So, um, work wise, uh, some of the projects I'm working on uh, include developing nutrition and wellness policies with community partners throughout uh, the reservation slash county. It's work that I'm doing through extension and uh, made possible with the Centers for Disease Control. Our grant is called Tut, and it means like we're all moving and it's a policy systems environment approach to wellness. So instead of a, a singular approach, like if you exercise for 30 minutes a day, you're going to be healthier. This is a really different approach where uh, if we address the policy side of things, if we look at like the food systems and those types of things, and then also our environment and physical activity, that when we combine all of those things together, that it creates a system of wellness. So that's our approach with the grant. And what's really cool about it is there's the freedom to incorporate Menominee cultural values, um, Menominee language and all these different things that are um, unique to our community. And I think there's a lot of strength in that. Um, so with the nutrition policies, some of the work that I've done is um, work with a number of different community partners. Um, I'll name some specific ones. So like our 4-H Leader Council, the College of Menominee Nation Department of Continuing Education, Menominee County, and many Conakim and um, all in different phases of the process. So some have policies that have been approved, some are in the writing process, and some are like in the early phases of uh, learning what their values are around nutrition and wellness. Yeah, so that's been that's been a major focus. And what's been really cool about the work is there's a lot of alignment about what health and nutrition and wellness is. And there's really a big interest from everybody around indigenous foods and sustainability and reducing waste. So those are present in pretty much every policy that I've helped to write. That's interesting that you're looking at it from a policies approach, because I feel like most of the health and wellness recommendations that we get are focused on our own individual actions. And that puts a lot of responsibility on the individual versus looking at how the community as a whole can become healthier and can support each other in that. And I also think recommendations tend to be pretty impersonal and broad, like that everyone should exercise 30 minutes a day, like you said. So it seems like you're coming at it from less of a focus on what individuals should do, but more like how can we structure the community to enhance wellness? Does that sound right? Right, right. So uh, a lot of these places are um, places where the public goes to and wouldn't it be great? I mean, it's already great that we have like four places that people can go to and know that it's going to be a place of wellness that promotes wellness and has like specific action steps on how they're going to do that. 
take, for example, like Menominee County, they have, I think they have like 90 employees, um, but that's 90 people that, you know, for 40 hours a week, at least that they're hopefully, you know, supporting and living by these policies and having healthier meetings and drinking more water um, and being more physically active. So by the end of this grant, if we can have 15 departments and organizations doing that, you know, that's, that can be big change. You mentioned healthier meetings. Can you talk more about what that means? Sure. So um, what's uh, what's the standard meeting? Like everyone comes in, they signs in, they sit down and they take notes and they'll sit for what, an hour, sometimes two hours. So healthier meetings are um, encouraged standing meetings. It's okay if people stand up and walk around. Um, and actually like that movement can help with thoughts and help with discussion. Making sure that water is always available, that there's water for people to drink. Having walking meetings. So instead of the standard sit around a table and everyone go around and talk, like this is a beautiful community. There's lots of places to go and walk. And why can't we conduct our business and be outside and be moving and um, get some fresh air and still still get the work done? I think the 4-H council is um, when they can gather again, what they want to do is take like little brain breaks. So if they have a meeting that's a longer meeting, like, like okay, let's take a break. Um, let's do some quick yoga or some quick stretching and some exercises and stuff. And so those are some ways to have healthier meetings. Yeah, I love that idea of a walking meeting because you can get outside, get your blood flowing and also get some fresh air. And I feel like some of the best conversations I've had with people were while walking. I know. Wouldn't it be great to have a like a snowshoe walking meeting out oh, on the path? Yes. <laughs> that would be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the more we can get people doing that, you know, the better. That that's that's the dream. So my next question is, what are you working on in the future? Are there any projects you're excited to be starting soon? Um, back to some of the policy work. So that's going to be a big focus for me is to continue working on that on the policy work. So to get more of our community partners um, involved and engaged and wanting to write policies for their departments or organizations. Also part of that is continuing to support. So those that have the policies in place, uh, it's one thing to write the policy. We didn't want to be the ones that say, this is good, you need to do this. Oh, you did it, great, let's go. It has to be a continued relationship and engagement. So uh, I'll be focusing on providing some educational support. So if it's like teaching people how much sugar they're drinking when they drink a soda, um, that, that kind of stuff, but also some other policy supports. So some actual funding to support making some of these things happen. So one was, uh, I'll, I'll just give an example. So one was like reducing the use of one-time products. So in our community, we have a lot of gatherings, not now, um, but we will again. Um, but when those gatherings come back, it would be great to move away from styrofoam plates, straws, plastic forks. So the policies that we've written are designed to help do away with that and move towards more sustainable options. So ideally we'd like to see um, people bring their own plates and dishes to events. And if that's not possible, making sure that there's compostable products and bamboo forks and knives and spoons and all of that available so that we're reducing the amount of waste that we're having. So if you think like in our community, if someone has an event like one day of the week, that's five events. And if you have 25 people like that's a lot of waste in one week. And that's pretty common in, in non-pandemic times to have events like that. So um, that's that's one way that we want to continue is to provide those policy supports. I'll share a story about Manny Konikim. Um, 
they already have great practices and things that they've always already been doing. Um, we help to put those into policy just to kind of memorialize the great work that they're already doing. One of their focuses is um, composting. So they have a small farm, but they need a large composter for their farm. So they want to reduce food waste and make best use of, of that waste. Um, and so we were able to get them a, a large composter and that will help them with their gardening work. So that's some of the stuff that I'll continue to do as part of my policy work. Another big project that I'm working on is uh, connecting destination points in the community. There's a lot of construction and changes that are taking place. There's sidewalks being um, constructed or built. I don't know what you say about new sidewalks. <laughs> um, so what I'm working to do is help people connect to places. So if like you're walking from the college to the clinic, like how far is that? But also figuring out how we can make this as Menominee as possible. So is there a way that we can put language, visible language for people to look at while they're walking so that they're learning? Um, are there um, ways that we can teach people about some of the environment that they see around them? So what are the Menominee words for like um, birch bark trees or pine trees? I'm also working with some college students and hopefully soon some high school students on figuring out ways to integrate more Menominee art into the environment, into mm -hmm. some of these walk spaces and maybe some walls. So hopefully we'll see some uh, Menominee informed, Menominee designed murals here in the next year or two. So since we are currently in pandemic times still, I wanted to ask, how has the pandemic affected your work and what have you done to adjust? Pandemic has had an incredible impact on my work. So prior to that, it was community outreach and um, gatherings and sharing food and being with people and sharing stories and uh, very community based and very community oriented. So like everyone, it's changed dramatically. So I've been working from home since uh, I think March 13th of 2020 um, and still engaging with community and doing so virtually and using all these different platforms. So like Zoom and um, WebEx and all these different mediums. Um, it's been challenging. Um, it's a different feel. I don't feel like we get like the same type of, of sharing um, still doing outreach and still trying to provide um, some education to community. So I've had a couple of online workshops and they're good, but there's there's that, you know, we need to be by each other. We want to be by each other. And um, that's that's really missing from a lot of a lot of the work. Doing a lot of like social media work, promoting um, how to be healthier um, and how to navigate the pandemic. Our office worked really hard to um, put together newsletters weekly. So I think we had like a 16 series newsletter. Uh, it was during the growing season. So I did a lot of uh, articles on uh, tips for gardening at home through the pandemic and tried to share some stories, tried to share some language, um, some growing and gardening tips and things for people to be mindful of. I think I did one on tomatoes and uh, checking on your tomatoes and staking them and all of that kind of stuff. So we just had to find creative ways to reach people. Yeah, I know. I think the pandemic has created kind of a resurgence and in interest around gardening, just around the country in general. Do you feel like that's been the case on the reservation as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to navigate in the spring. This is when we do have our big workshops and wasn't sure how to do that. And then I started getting emails from community members like, we need to do this. Um, I think people were really worried about 
their food and food security and that like heightened the interest in gardening. So yeah, I had to respond. I had to find a way to help. And so I think that's what spurred like the online workshops that I did was I knew that I needed to, but the community interest is like, you have to, you have to do something. And I know that a lot of us felt that call and that responsibility. And I know that you did some really good work with, you know, growing and gardening too. So, you know, I hope that we, we filled, filled what people were needing. I'm not sure how I want to ask this, but I want to ask, what do you think you're most passionate about and how do you think that passion arose in you? Yeah, that's a tough, a tough question. Um, Like everyone, we have like lots and lots of different passions. Um, I'll just say what jumped right to my mind when you asked me is, um, you know, Menominee language, um, our Menominee culture and our Menominee arts. I really believe that there's so much strength in all of those, um, that that promotes health and wellness and not in the the Western context of eating right and exercising, but just like a whole community wellness and like spiritual wellness. And there's just just so much there within that. Um, And however I can be a part of that, I want to. Um, I try to incorporate that into my work. And lately, like the focus of my work has been food sovereignty or Menominee food systems. It's, um, I, I go back and forth on, on where, where I'm at with uh, what I want to call the work. But however, however I can do that. And I think like the experiences that shaped me are similar to like the work. Like I always wanted to be home. I didn't grow up here and I always wanted to be here. And I valued the times that I did get to come home, like on summer vacations or Christmas or, or something like that. And, um, spending time with my cousins and my family and my grandparents just were like so formative and just something I longed for being away from here. So um, it's something that just like I cherish and I hold on to. My grandmother, Cynthia, she's a, a language speaker and just, you know, being able to spend time with her and listen to her and um Back in the day, I didn't always know what she was saying because I didn't speak the language, but just hearing her just made me want to understand and to know and to learn. And I felt like a responsibility for that. In my in my path, I was fortunate to meet some really good people along the way that um, helped me and shared with me what they knew about language. And they're a big part of my life today, as well as my grandmother. And now I can understand my grandma most of the time, a lot, a lot of the times I can't, but I can understand her sometimes when she's, when she talks. And um, there's a feeling that that gives you that I can't explain. If I could give that to everybody, I would, because it's just such a good, a good feeling. And I think having that feeling, like I want to give that. So I try to make it a part of my work, however I can do that. The college has been a a wonderful partner and um, Extension has been a great supporter of Menominee Arts Revitalization work or um, with our gardening workshops that we do that we incorporate the language and um, provide space for sharing for people and having vocabulary words and just any any way that we can incorporate that into, into what it is that we're doing collectively. It gives people, I hope it gives people something inspiring. You're the one that we always go to here when we need to know how to pronounce the anonymous word. <laughs> I don't always know, but I do my best. <laughs> so when you decided that you wanted to learn the language, how did you actually go about doing that? Um, so one, it was like spending time with my grandma and getting getting, getting words here and there. Um, and then Brian actually applied for a, a grant and they had community language tables. Brian, by the way, is the Dean of Continuing Education at CMN. And that's where I really like 
stepped into it. I was a, a faithful participant and I don't think I missed any language table. Um, and I did that for about a year, year and a half and was thankful to spend some time with, with some elders and um, some language teachers and that really pushed me. I don't know when that was, that had to be like over 10 years ago or so. Oh wow. Yeah. So I've been I've been learning ever ever since. I try to learn something new every day and it's um it's a lifelong learning process and I'm by no means fluent, but you know, I can introduce myself and say things that I see or say things that I like and uh, I think that's important. <laughs> Do you have a favorite word or phrase in Menominee? Um favorite phrase, I'll have to say um my grandma and she said uh ni kako. And that means to always to take care of everything. And she always says that. And uh, I feel that responsibility to like yeah. to try to take care of everything. That sounds like a lot of responsibility, but that's a beautiful sentiment. It is. Um, and uh, it's something that uh, I think that we all carry with us. You know, we all feel yeah. the responsibility. You mentioned that you go back and forth on whether you want to use the term Menominee Food Systems or Food Sovereignty. And I wanted to ask you about that because I was watching this webinar you did for Extension, and I don't remember the name of the webinar, but you and Brian were both on it. And you were talking about how you did a community food sovereignty assessment a few years ago, and how you found out that food sovereignty wasn't actually a term that people were using in the community, but they still knew what it meant. And this podcast, of course, is about food sovereignty. So I wanted to ask, what do you think about that term? And do you think there's a better term? Um, it's, it's still something that's, that's constantly evolving for me. When we did those assessments, I learned so much from our community participants. And I think there's a tendency to make things complicated and, um, it doesn't need to be complicated. And there were a few things that I heard that really, that really stuck with me. And it was like, oh, you mean be Menominee? And uh, someone else said, well, that was, we, we lived that way just not too long ago. This is just like a couple generations back, it's still there. And um, that really stuck with me. And then I think, you know, maybe a few weeks after I had that discussion, my um, aunt came and, and knocked on my office door and she said, hey, I wanted to give this to you. And she had made a jar of like choke cherry jam. And I'm like, this is what, this is what it is. It's like, not a definition, it's an act and it's um, doing it. And I think that's that's where I'm at with it. So I guess if I had to put it into words, it means like connecting to our Menominee food systems in any way that we can. Um, and that can be like in the traditional ways or finding ways that we make that part of our like contemporary lives and living that however we can. So if it's just, um, you know, making a cup of tea from something that you picked from the woods, like that's an act of food sovereignty. So I think that's what it is for me. I like that. I think a lot of the definitions I've been reading of food sovereignty are kind of impersonal. You know, it's like, do you have access to healthy food? Do you have a say in how your food is produced? And those things, of course, are really important. But I think that thinking of it as an act sort of makes it feel more real. Can you talk a little more about how you conducted the food sovereignty assessment? Sure. So um, we use some tools from the First Nations Development Institute, and they have um, all these really great questions that are, you know, specifically designed for tribal communities. Um, and there were a few that we saw that were like, hey, we don't know anything about this, so let's see what we can find out. 
And we wanted to be inclusive. So as we um, develop our programs, um, it has to be for the community. It has to be what they're asking for and what it is that they want. So I think that's the approach that we went in with that is um, whatever it is that we hear, like this is going to guide our work and this is going to tell us what we need to do. And we tried to make it a very open process and a very fair process where all voices were represented. So we went around clockwise around the room and had questions and pushed people's comfort zones a little bit because we wanted everyone to talk. Um, sometimes there's that one strong voice um, that maybe that strong voice becomes the conversation. Um, and when you're in a room of 15 people, like you know that there's all these ideas and thoughts out there. So while we value the strong voices, we had to get those that were there too. Like they're there for a reason. and. Um, we wanted to make the space for them to be able to talk and share. And it was a really great process, a successful process, I think. And uh, we learned we learned a lot and it changed changed how we do things. I think the types of programs and like types of outreach that we were offering um, prior to that, I think it was like, this is what we should do. This would be really cool. And then after that, it was this is what they asked for. So this is what we need it to be about. Um, and some of those were like gardening basics, like how to design your garden. And we weren't thinking of that. We were like jumping into like start your plants, plant them and grow, but we weren't giving people the foundation for that. So that I think that was one of the major changes that came about from that. It also told us some things that we were doing right. So a lot of people were like Menominee language, Menominee culture, um, and making that more part of programs. And um, we were doing that. And I think after that, we were doing it more. Going back a little bit, you were talking about how your aunt gave you that jar of choke cherry jam and how that was an act of food sovereignty. What do you think are some things that you do in your life that are acts of food sovereignty? Um, ooh, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I hope that I'm sharing and passing along what others have, have shared with me, both in my personal life and in my professional life. Um, I think that anyone that knows a little bit about me, they know that I love gardening. Uh, I love growing things. Uh, it's something that I spent doing with my grandma, Cynthia. Um, when I was in college, I lived with my grandparents. And then after college for a number of years, I lived with them and um, she always had a garden. And I just remember me and my cousins like going out back and picking cucumbers. And uh, this was our favorite was like a sliced cucumbers, vinegar and salt. And we would oh, eat that yeah. like all summer long. <laughs> yeah, just that. And like my grandma making fried tomatoes. And um, I didn't know that I was learning from her then, but she taught all of us so much about growing and gardening. And that really inspired me to to want to grow food and uh, have those have those food memories with my nieces and nephews um, when they when they come to visit. You know, I'm hoping that that's one way that I'm contributing is, you know, sharing, giving people seeds, sharing my, um, I don't know if I want to say failures, but <laughs> uh, mistakes, mistakes that I've learned uh, growing, you know, every, every growing season is an opportunity to uh, experiment and to learn and like, okay, don't ever do that again. <laughs> um, so I think that's, you know, that's one way that I, I hope that I'm promoting food sovereignty. Um, I would love it if everybody on the reservation could grow their own food, even if it's, you know, planting some cucumbers, or cucumber seeds or uh, having a tomato plant. There's just uh, a connection that you have 
uh, once you start planting those seeds that for me, it's like, um, it's just nurturing. And I go check on them every day. I talk to them and Mm -hmm. see how they're doing. And they, they're like my little kids in the summer. So however, you know, I can promote that and pass that along to others. I'd love to do that. Same thing with like wild harvesting and getting berries and, you know, sharing with people those experiences or going out with people and and doing those things together. Professionally, how am I promoting food sovereignty? Um, So much, I hope. There's a project that I'm really, really excited about that Extension has been working on for the last year. Uh, There's a team of us, there's two from the local office, and then we have a couple of um, state team members and we developed, uh, it's called a Harvest of the Moon resource guide. And um, it incorporates the Menominee seasons, the Menominee moons, uh, the foods that grow or are harvested in each of those moons. There's uh, information about, you know, how to say that word in the language. There's a, a healthy recipe. Um, there's a picture. Dan Greeno, he's a community artist. He helped do the graphic design work. So uh, he incorporated some Menominee art into that. I've seen seen some of the draft work of it, and it's just absolutely beautiful. And I can't wait for this to be out in the community and for people to see that and um, that it becomes a a place to start talking and to start remembering because I know that everyone has their own food experiences and berry picking experiences. And I think like visually when you see something like this, it brings those things out and gets the conversations going and um, you know, that, that storytelling and uh, memories. So I, I'm just really excited about this and I can't wait for it to be printed and out. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, my understanding of the moon's calendar is that there's 13 moons throughout the year and then each one has a different harvesting or gathering or planting act associated with it. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely right. Right. So we'll be entering into um, soon the uh, Namap and Queso and that's one of the moons in our guide and that's the uh, like the sucker moon. Um, and that's uh, kind of like when like all the ice fishing and things start. Oh, so we yeah. have a uh, talk about that and um, the word for fish and we have a, a traditional, I don't know, I don't know if it's traditional, but there's a Menominee recipe about um, fish. Speaking of recipes, do you have a favorite uh, recipe or dish using traditional foods? Uh, so many, so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess um, basic, like uh, maybe not basic, um, but like the root of it, like I love venison and um, my grandma prepares it and it's so good and uses a cast iron skillet and it's just uh, like a venison steak and she cooks it with um, salt and pepper and butter. So good. And no one can cook it like her. <laughs> like I've tried, she's just an amazing, amazing cook. So that that's one. Um, anything with wild rice so like the wild rice and berry salad is really good Um, and then contemporary like I had some leftover wild rice and I made like egg fried wild rice um, just to try something it was so good (laughs) so yeah just like anything with wild rice I like That's what Cherie said, too. She said wild rice is her favorite food. And it has to be hand harvested. There's a very big difference between what you can find in the grocery stores and what someone gifts you. A very uh, earthy taste. So it has to be hand harvested. The wild rice that I've had was I bought it from the grocery store and it was from Minnesota is what it said Mm -hmm. on the package. Well, Mm -hmm. um, we'll have to get together and make you some wild rice. 
<laughs> yes, that would be amazing. And harvested wild rice. And I want to taste the difference. <laughs> I had that. Big difference. Wild, I made wild rice with strawberries, blueberries, and maple syrup, and that was delicious. Add um, toasted walnuts or toasted almonds to it. It's even better. Oh, yeah. That would be really good. I should make that. Yeah. Um, what would it look like to have complete food sovereignty on the reservation? Um, so a vision of complete food sovereignty would be uh, um, everyone has access to both contemporary and traditional foods, that we have a, a food system that's Menominee reliant and we're not dependent on outside sources for our sustainability, that people have a relationship with food um, and a value for food um, and a connection with it that people are preparing and sharing and giving food with uh, purpose and intention. So uh, that's, that's what a Menominee Food Sovereignty would look like to me. Thank you for listening to the Menominee Food Sovereignty Podcast. And thanks especially to Jen for sharing your experiences. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing Adam Schultz about the agricultural research he's done on the reservation over the last four years. The theme music you're hearing right now is One Little Step at a Time from the album Journey of the Heart by Wade Fernandez. You can download his music online and listen to it right away at wadefernandez.com, or you can buy a CD. Wade is a Menominee musician, and currently he has a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for a new double CD, and you can find the link to that on his website if you'd like to donate.